All right, so it is helpful to know before we kind of dig into the text as we've been talking about, as we talked about last week, that um, ancient Persian culture in the time period that Esther talks about the way that status was measured socially and culturally for men very much had to do with your wealth, possessions, uh, your success in life. And for women, it was very much about, yes, your wealth, but also your beauty, your prowess in the bedroom, and, and, and things like that. And, I mean, it's just, it makes you think, thank God we don't live in a time or place like that, right? Yeah, that was, sorry, that, I was very dry in the delivery of that joke, but it's pretty universally true, and this is something that absolutely doesn't change too much over time or culture, that this is just humanity at its best and worst. It's funny, though, because it's true, right? And I would say that not, it's not just a, 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 a function, those things are not just a function of status, but especially the way status is used, which is power. That's the subtext of this, right? We are a culture, modern, you know, modern West globally, but and especially here in the United States, we are a culture that is obsessed with power. It is kind of the, the white noise in the background of so much of society, and especially anything that we have conflict over, and I don't have to go through the litany or the list of things that that might include. In many ways, we have many ways, depending on our agenda or what the topic is, that we use to describe or to quantify power. We might use it, we might do so with like a social identity, like race or gender, sexuality, marital status, or we might do it in a, a more concrete way, uh, in something along the lines of our, our career field or our tax bracket, our leadership position, our education level, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The point of that, and what I'm trying to say here, is that, that for us, in our obsession around power, and, and we're not just describing it, we're at, it's actually a reason why. It's actually kind of a, a vision for life for modern Western culture. We think to ourselves, if we, don't have, if we don't have the freedom to do everything that we desire, if we are unhappy, then it must be because someone else has more power economically, socially, culturally, politically than we do. And we think that the solution there is just to gain or to grasp or to have more power. Now, the pursuit of power, not terribly new, right? This is something as old as time, as, as old as uh, men seeking power through wealth and women seeking power through beauty, although it's not really cool to di differentiate those quite as much as we used to, okay? What's new is that power has become, the best, the best way I've become to describe this is it's an upside-down virtue. It's an upside-down virtue at least, and at, at worst, not having power in a weird way has become an idol, which ironically is itself a power play. To illustrate this, the best example I can think of is um, the classic, and if you haven't seen this, your homework for next week is to go and watch this amazing film called Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That was not a joke. Um, if you've seen the movie, you know the scene where, where King Arthur, whose, whose squire is banging coconuts together to simulate the sound of a horse, 
he is, he is traveling and searching for Camelot and going to Camelot, and he comes upon a castle, and he's, he stops to ask the peasants who were farming or scrounging around in the dirt or doing something, he asks, what castle is this? Who lives there? And, and one of the peasants uh, is weirdly um, educated and articulate. And he starts giving a manifesto uh, around uh, you know, social capitalism and communism and, and the bourgeois and the oppression that they experience as... Uh, you know, as mere peasants, and King Arthur's just like, man, I just wanted directions. I, like, can you just, can you just stop me? Like, can I grab him? He's like, can you just, can you just talk to me like a human being? And he, and in and the classic line, what does he say? He yells, "What? Yes!" Like, you guys are raising your kids right. Okay, help, help! I'm being repressed. Right? The cry, "Help, help! I'm being oppressed." is almost what animates everything in our society right now. And especially, uh, it, it's become almost a worldview, both on whether we're talking about the left or the right. Okay? Now, I just want to kind of give a disclaimer that if you are like wondering and worried and you're like, oh my gosh, Brad, are you going gonna to start talking about politics or something like that? I want to assure you and let you know up front, yes. Okay? Politically speaking, it is the easiest place to see what I'm trying to describe here. In any election, it doesn't matter whether it's the midterms or the um, every four-year catastrophe that is the presidential election, it, it feels like it's this competition between both candidates on the left and the right to, to compete with and to establish this narrative of who is more misunderstood, who is more martyred, who is more anti-elite or anti-establishmentarian, Virtue has now become a virtue to be targeted by the same hidden malicious powers that are, press, are pressing all of us. Like, that's the, that's the kind of human appeal that is given. You could, you could literally kind of like, the, the, here's the formula. I'm even going to like kind of tear off the veil on this, right? This is the formula. Power-hungry people with too much power want to take away your power, and I'll stop them. Vote for me. Pay no attention to the multi-million dollar stock portfolio and the third vacation home I have. I'm, I promise you, I'm oppressed too. Like, and we let it happen, right? Whether we're talking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Donald J. Trump, it's the same message with different categories and different metrics, but they're both performative. It's actually kind of brilliant. If you got to kind of hand it to them that, that like that actually works on us in a sense. Now, I'm just scratching the surface. I could, if you were at the membership class yesterday, you know I could talk about this all day. I'm dwelling on this now, and I'm making this point before we even read the text because it is important for us to know before we read the text that we obsess with and, have, and often make an idol out of power without our even knowing it because it's a little, I'm, I'm doing what is the equivalent of trying to explain to fish what it's like to be wet. You don't even know any different, okay? Now, if we let it, though, Esther has amazing, yes, power to confront and transform our view and understanding of power from the bottom up. So let's jump into that. It, primarily, this morning, we're going to look at Vashti, Queen Vashti and the royal court, and Queen Esther and the royal harem, and then we're going to unpack it. But let's start with Queen Vashti and the royal court on Esther chapter 1. I'm going to kind of skip a chunk in between but I'll carry us through here. Uh, starting in verse 10, it says, On the seventh day, 
In other words, on the seventh day of this massive six-month-long banquet that we talked about last week. When the heart of the king was merry with wine, which, yes, that means what you think it is. He is probably inebriated. Um, he commanded Mehemam, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abiktha, Zethar, and Carcass, all great baby names for the record, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, which I will swear, I promise, I will learn to pronounce by the end of the sermon series, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Skipping down to verse 19. This is a, one of his advisors saying, like, King uh, Asherus and slash uh, Xerxes, as we talked about last week, um, here's how you should handle it. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him. Let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti, it's the first time Vashti is not Queen Vashti, but Vashti, is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when, the decree may, so when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike, which always works. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memicum proposed. He sent leaders to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. <sighs> We're just really starting off with the fun stuff, aren't we? Um, we know very, very little about Queen Vashti. This is the only time she's even mentioned in the entire book of Esther. What we do know, besides you know, anything biographical about her, is that her place in the story, her, the purpose of her role, is to provoke the power dynamics that are going on in the royal court, right? The queen, and again, this is something that is very trans, like universal across human cultures, the queen personifies the king's power and glory. She is a representation and a symbol of those things. And it's, when it says um, that he sends for her to come with her crown, and, and there are seven eunuchs, like that's, you, you really only need one eunuch to go get, you know, tell the queen a message, and bring her back. He sends seven. The point of that is to communicate that there is a kind of formal or ceremonial uh, function and purpose to her coming. It's also interesting, some of the grammar, um, uh, when it says, with her crown on, the grammar is kind of ambiguous in the Hebrew, that, such that it, it has some kind of an intentional innuendo, as if like, come wearing only your crown. And so there's some very kind of trophy wife, trophy queen innuendo that's being mixed up and meshed up with this idea of the queen being a status power and a display of power and a personified symbol thereof, right? Queen Elizabeth uh, II's funeral is today. And if you want to see how, uh, how a person can, can represent and be a symbol of, of power and of a, of, a, of a culture, of a people, of a nation... I encourage you to watch that either, either you know, probably after the fact, but that's, that's what's going on here. And remember also, like we talked about last week, 
that this massive six-month banquet celebration was also concurrent with with a great war council with all the leaders and the nobles and the princes and the principalities of, of the empire coming together to talk about getting revenge on Greece. And so that for the second Greco-Persian war. And so there are leaders who are coming from all across the empire. It's basically, it's like this. It's kind of like Facebook, except in person, right? Because they're instantly connected to every place through the people who are there attending this banquet. And the king cannot afford to look weak right now or else it's going to be displayed publicly on the news feeds. I mean, sorry, it's going to go back to the towns through gossip. And those, those returning nobles will instantaneously be talking about that, and the king's power will be diminished. King Xerxes is scared. He's terrified that he's going to lose his throne and lose his powers because how loyal will these nobles be if my own queen refuses to obey me. Verse 18, I didn't read it, but it it actually says this. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. In other words, you're going to sleep on the couch, right? Now, It's not just the king, though. The advisors, the the court, they're terrified. They're actually anxious, and their entire lens for this has been compromised. They are actually, in, in, in pushing the king to do this, it's implied in the text that they are actually, they are universalizing their own anxiety in order to manipulate the king toward their own ends, to preserve their power either in the home and or in the kingdom. And this is what makes this almost like an SNL skit, right? It's, I didn't even think about it the first couple times I read this passage, but how effective do you think you're going to spread the gossip if you send out by royal decree that every man is deserving of their wife's respect in the household and to speak the language of his people and not her people? Like, you're broadcasting the very thing that the king of this empire was not able to do with his own queen, It's a self-own of epic proportion. And it's all because it's saturated in this idol of power. And the fear that that power and that that idolatry of power provokes and saturates across the board. Okay, now let's fast forward a little bit and and read into chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Um, It's important to keep in mind, too, here, between these two passages, between chapters 1 and 2, we have that, that second Greco-Persian war happens. So several years pass between Queen Vashti being deposed and Queen Esther, as we're going to talk about. So let me, let's start reading verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, "'Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king.'" And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their, costu- sorry, let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young, women who please, the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. 
Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away from Jeconia, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and many, when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, or the, 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 the beautifying regime and, and, and program, since this was the regular period of their beautifying six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king. She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now, I read a lot more about Esther because the details really matter. And the amount of, the, of writing about Esther is trying to make a point. The point is that this is not how things are normally done. The point is in ver that verse 3, this, this idea that the young men of the court had for the king, this is how you should choose your next queen, is absolutely not the way it was normally done in Persia. In Persia, normally the king or his uh, heir would marry into one of the seven kind of most noble and royal families that are connected to the king. But again, you have to keep in mind this is after the Battle of Thermopylae. This is where the 300 Spartans shamed and humiliated the great Persian horde. This is after Xerxes himself was sent backpacking to home to Susa. So the king is nursing defeat. He is sulking around the palace. He's trying to soothe his humiliation with sensual overindulgence to the point that um, historians, multiple historians record that it was a, a common thing that if you were an officer in his army, you should expect him to sleep with your wife. So it's no wonder that in 465 BC, 
uh, he was assassinated in his bedchamber. In the midst of that sulking, in the midst of that, like, I, who, who am I? Because my identity is attached to all of this power, and now I've been humiliated. These, these I don't even know if they're well-intending or not. These, these courtiers say, hey, you know what? You should just start your own version of The Bachelor. It's, per, it's the Persian Bachelor, right? Bring in virgins, the most beautiful virgins from all across the entire empire, and they, have, they can have one year of prep for one night of performing with the king. And if you were one of them... If you were his favorite, then you become queen. If not, then you would live a life in lonely luxury because you could never leave. If you've been with the king, it's just unseemly and, 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 and just indecent to marry anyone after you've already been with it. He's a god. He's the king. And so they would live the rest of their lives in the harem, never marrying, never having kids, never doing anything other than being spoiled and looking pretty. Now, I know I just described this as a, a glorified beauty pageant, um, but I want you to know that no, it is not a benign beauty pageant. This, this entire choice and this decision to find a new queen this way was a performative flex. It was a political act that is reasserting power over an unstable empire in decline, saying, I have so much power, I can take the most beautiful women from all across the empire without your consent and to bring them to me, and then I will pick the greatest of among them. He also, by the way, he didn't just do this with women. Uh, we know that 500 boys per year were castrated and entered into the king's palace as servants for the rest of their lives. Actually, when you put it that way, it makes Esther's deal look pretty good. Enter Esther into this, right? Uh, I love uh, Mike Cosper, who's an author. He wrote a book about Esther. He uh, refers to her and summarizes her as the, ki the Kim Kardashian of the Old Testament. So if you think that's stupid, it's not me. It's blame Mike Cosper. Um, she's gorgeous, and she's caught up in this dragnet herself and the, there's this repetition of a word that makes you and kind of forces you to ask the question of how much choice did she have in this or not? And that word is taken, right? Which introduces, like, is this more The Bachelor or is it, movie that, is it more like the movie Taken with Liam Neeson, right? It says in, in verse 7, Mordecai took Esther as his own daughter, Right? That's, a, that's obviously a very good kind of taken, right? It's an adopting, it's a receiving, it's a, it's, a, it's a gift, it's a blessing. But then in the next verse, it says, Esther is taken to the palace and the harem. So is that like an adopting kind of taken, or is it like a kicking and screaming kind of taken? It's also the same word used to describe how they were taken into exile. It's the same word throughout, and it's used several times. The point of this as that there's no way to know. Esther is, the author is making the point, there's no way to know how much this did or did not have her consent. Mordecai, though, he didn't hide. He didn't flee. He didn't threaten over the phone that he has a particular set of skills, right? That was a Taken movie reference scene if you're paying attention. But also, lonely luxury doesn't sound so bad for a woman who is also an orphan and also an exile in, in a place like that. Either way, and, and the text is, is, is like insisting that we ask that question, it also says that question is kind of irrelevant, right? 
Because either way, once Esther is there, she is a far from passive contestant. In verse 15, it says that she sought the counsel of the eunuch. He followed, she followed his advice because it was his job to know all of the, king, the king's you know, bedroom preferences and proclivities and to make sure that he was satisfied. That was his job, which is a really cruel job for a eunuch especially. And he won the, she won the favor of all who saw her. To the point, to the degree that it was Esther's feast, not the king's feast. Did you catch that in verse 18? And that's the bookend to Vashti's feast in chapter 1, which we talked about last week. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. By a show of hands, I'm going to ask who, so far, just reading the text, who do you think was more righteous? By a show of hands, who, do you think, who of you think Vashti was more righteous in, in, in her conduct and behavior? Okay, I got a couple... Oh, sorry, Vashti or Esther? Yeah, sorry, even on this here. There we go. How many of you think Vashti was the more righteous in, in, in their conduct and behavior? Okay, we got a handful, uh, several maybe. Uh, all of you apparently are suspicious of me. Um, uh, how many of you think it was Esther who was more righteous? And after I ask if, that you're suspicious of me, nobody raises their hands. Cool, all right. So that was a terrible sermon illustration. The answer is, it's the wrong question. You suspect that, because I do this to you on a fairly regular basis. It's the wrong question, because that is the question, not that Esther is trying, like the book of Esther is trying to ask, but that is what happens when we live in a culture that is saturated with power. You read the text through that lens. It's something we call eisegesis, which is like part of the Greek means that uh, you're reading into the text instead of exegesis, which is out of the text and from the text. Your interpretation is going into it versus coming out from it. And we live in a moment that is particularly plagued by uh, something called presentism, which is when we look at the past and we judge the past by our current modern standards, which may or may not be wrong, and somebody sometime in the future is going to do the exact same thing to us now. That should engender us in us some humility. Now, if, there are, if it's God's standards that we're doing this by, that's a different thing. It's not a culturally confined and defined one. But what Esther does with all of its kind of moral ambiguity in the narrative is it makes it almost impossible to do that, far harder than most. Now, let me tell you, let me, let's talk about how this text has been misinterpreted because I think it's really important because Esther as a book has confounded people for hundreds of years for a variety of different ways, but the two most popular and common right now is that it makes so mad both feminists and traditionalists when, it's, when you're looking at gender through a lens of power, okay? Because the, the, a feminist interpret, interpretation looks at Vashti, who is also, by the way, historically like a, like a feminist icon, um, if that can be said of anybody in the Old Testament, um, uh, because she, she stood against sexism, right? There was this innuendo in, in, in her wearing a crown that was implied as a trophy wife, right, that, that she should come wearing only the crown. Like, it's kind of ambiguous about that. And so she, she protests the, the patriarchal uh, structure and powers that be. Esther, on the other hand, she caves. She's totally complicit in the system, she plays uh, by the patriarchy's rules. The problem with this 
is if you actually read how the people that this is a sacred scripture for, especially Jewish commentary, there's a, this thing called Midrash, which is uh, like ancient Jewish commentary, rabbinical commentary. They have two theories for why Vashti had her own banquet in chapter one. The first theory is that um, with everybody coming from all of the empire, the, the risk of assassination was significantly higher than usual. And that means if you had their wives going to a separate banquet, that they could be under guard and kept as a hostage to prevent the king from being assassinated so he can kind of drink to his heart's content. And when King Xerxes slash Ahasuerus calls the queen to come, what he's doing is he's, because he's drunk, he forgets that that was the plan. And so if Queen, if queen Vashti isn't there, it all falls apart, so she stays because she's trying to do the right thing, not because she's trying to pr protest patriarchal systems. The second theory is uh, she, revised, she refused to dine with the king because that was actually like the ancient Near Eastern version of you're sleeping on the couch, and, and marital drama spills over into the public sphere um, because they're so self-concerned. On the other hand, so... That's the kind of feminist interpretation, right? And, and the problem with that, now the traditional, traditionalist interpretation looks at this and sees Vashti's disobedience as sin and that that actually paved the way for God to send Esther who was faithful to her husband, the king, and it was because of her faithfulness and her righteousness in, in being a good wife that that's why God used her to save the Jews. Major problem with that. Uh, the Bible has a lot to say, especially Jewish Torah, uh, about marrying a Gentile <laughs> uh, to the degree that in Nehemiah, which remember this takes place right before the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, when he finds out that men have taken Gentile wives, when he finds this out, he takes them into the streets and beats them. That is not what Esther is saying, right? That cannot be what's happening here. In fact, so you know that this is just not me, you know, as a, a male pastor you know, adding my two cents, I would like you to know that my top two commentaries I'm using for this sermon series are both written by women. One of them, Karen, J Karen Jobes, says, one could argue, however, that Esther was an even more subversive presence in her patriarchal society than Vashti, if it's even legitimate to characterize the Persian culture by this modern label. In other words, it's not. This book of the Bible bears the name of a woman who outwitted powerful evil men and lived to write a decree celebrating it. This was such a remarkable feat for a woman in the ancient world, patriarchal or otherwise, that an author who was almost certainly a man dared to write a book about it. By the way, Esther is one of two who, is, who are named after women. That has survived well over 2,000 years. My point in all this is to say that this is not, Esther does not intend us to read this and to, as a, a moral contrast between two queens through this lens of power. If anything, it is a cautionary tale and a warning, warning not to do so. It's a cautionary tale and a warning about seeing everything through the lens of power and thus it becoming an idol. Like Karen Jobs also says that when power is combined with decadence and ruthlessness, no one is safe. That is true. Also, decadence and ruthlessness, you could replace the synonyms as privilege and hidden agendas. When that happens, no one is safe. That is the point. It's actually power as an idol that is in, in view here. And so, 
instead of asking who is more righteous, we should be asking the question instead, how do I treat and view power as a source of righteousness? Another way of saying that is, how do I view and treat power as a source of my identity, as a means of achieving my own dignity, value, and worth? Because if identity is on the line, then every slight, every unfair or unequal power differential, even and especially the valid ones, are not going to just be power differentials. They are also going to be existential threats. We will not just be unhappy, we will also be less than human somehow because our worth is on the line with it. And the more that we obsess about power and the more we see life almost as like a, as a, it's almost become a worldview through this lens of power, the more it will compromise and control you. So here's what I mean by that. Kind of worked out practically. If you see through a lens of power, if you... If, if power is an idol for you, you are, we are going to be more likely to excuse top-down abuse from institutional leaders, right? I don't need to tell you about all that, how that is like racking our country, both and especially inside the church right now, right? It will excuse top-down abuse from institutional leaders because we will see those leaders as deserving the, that consequence because they fight for me. Because they're actually fighting for my dignity, value, and worth. And if I don't excuse that, then my dignity, value, and worth is on the line. And they told me so. That's how I know. Right? He's the king. He's, he's divine. He's one of the gods. He's the stability of the empire and the legacy. Uh, and legacy is on the line. Character doesn't matter. Just do what he wants because otherwise we're nobody. We're out on the streets. But also, it excuses bottom-up abuse of institutional leaders in both directions. And that is because institutional leaders, because they have power already and they have the most power, they have the most dignity, value, and worth then, and it's already unfair. And so this is just the abuse that I can give an institutional leader now is, is simply rebalancing the scales. We see this in Memekin, the, the, the advisor, his anxious self-concern, another word for mild narcissism. Um, he is terrified of being powerless. And he knows that the king has the power to either fix that or not, and so he pulls the levers of whatever power he has in order to manipulate the king into doing what most preserves his power. It's all, that's, that's the entire, what the entire narrative is about in chapter one. Now, thankfully, there's a different way. And it's not as we might be tempted to think, oh, Esther is the right option, because the, the narrative actually resists even that. But it is implicit in Esther. Here's what I mean. There's this power of righteousness hidden. The name is the source of our dignity, value, and worth, especially in ancient Near, East, Near, Eastern, ancient Near Eastern cultures. Your name told you the most important thing about somebody. Esther's Esther has two names. The first, her Jewish name, is Hadessa. You know what that name means? Righteous. Hadessa means righteous. Her other name, Esther, is a, it's a Hebrew pun. It sounds like the word hidden. Her righteousness is not on display, even if her flesh is, because that's not who she is. Colossians 3, 
Paul uses this word hidden. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your dignity, value, and worth, who you are is hidden. And yes, that means it's hard to see something. But it also means utterly, irrevocably secure and safe and unthreatened by the powers of this world because there is a greater, if hidden, power that has secured it for you. And that is a hidden righteousness. If we receive that dignity, value, and worth by grace, which for Esther, that is clear, right? Because she has not followed Torah. She has not followed the law. She is a very problematic moral exemplar. That's putting it lightly. But if you receive that by grace and that is not on the line, then you are free from power controlling you, whether it is a love and an idolatry of power or other people's power, because, and you're able to steward it with humility. In his space trilogy, C.S. Lewis has this amazing line in, in, in the second one, Paralandra. He says, one never can see, or not till long afterwards, why anyone was selected for any job. And when one does, it is usually some reason that leaves no room for vanity. Certainly, it is never for what the man himself would have regarded as his chief qualifications. In other words, often the way God works, he chooses us not for our qualifications, but our abundance of disqualifications for our abundance of not being competent so that his power is made perfect in and through our weakness. Esther knew that she was along for the ride, but not passively so. She humbly trusted those around her. She won friends and influenced enemies, or what's the name of the book? No, that's not at all the point, right? She was faithful wherever she was. Mordecai and Haggai, she believed them, she trusted them. If your identity, your dignity, value, and worth is received by grace and thus not on the line, then you won't fear losing power because any power you have, any privilege you have is all by gift and grace anyway, even if it is given or it is, if you have it by means that are wicked and unjust, it doesn't matter because you can still choose to live into the dignity, value, and worth that you have in Christ and, and, and steward it for the sake of others. If you have a dignity, value, and worth that is received by grace and your identity is thus not on the line, then power is put in its place. Not as a bad thing to feel guilty about or having, uh, about having or as a source of your identity. It's not something that is an existential crisis if it is threatened or causes you to stay awake at night because you don't have enough but as a resource to steward so that others may flourish. We're going to move into the Q&A in just a second, but the last thing I want to say is just this, that like the contrast between the two queens is to help us to see this. Esther is crowned queen because her superpower is not playing the game underneath the game. Whether Esther even knew it or not, it doesn't say. In fact, it goes out of its way to make clear that that is not something we should worry about. And whether she intended it or chose it or not, again, it's ambiguous, it still resulted with God's hidden power, God's Esther power, God's Esther providence 
being more clearly seen because his power is made perfect in and through his people's weakness. Guys, that's really good news. And I hope and pray that whatever it is that you're carrying this morning, especially with respect to power, that you can hear that and be freed by it and not feel beat up because you didn't see it before or you see it wrong or whatever, okay? The point of that is freedom and rescue. That's the entire point of the book of Esther, and it starts in chapter 1. It doesn't wait until the Jews are saved. It starts in chapter 1. Okay, let's see what questions we have so far. Only one question? Oh, gosh, you guys. I know you can do better than this. Okay, isn't this type of thinking objectifying women at a time when they are able to do anything men can do compared to ancient times? It seems Christianity is one remaining thing that would rather keep women down, but then again, most of the text was compiled by men in a way that gives the leaders more power than others. Would we send our daughters off for leaders today and say it's part of God's plan or a leader's executive order? Kind of Epsteinish, isn't it? Okay, so you made up with quantity with quality. Um, I'm going to read this again, both to buy myself time and to make sure I understand it. <laughs> Isn't this type of thinking objectifying women at a time when they are able to do anything men can do compared to ancient times? It seems Christianity is one remaining thing that would rather keep women down, but then again, most of the text was compiled by men in a way that gives the leaders more power than others. Would we send our daughters off for leaders today and say it's part of God's plan or a leader's executive order, kind of Epsteinish, isn't it? All right, I'm going to answer this in two parts, okay? I'm going to first talk about the upstream piece and then the downstream. The upstream being like, how do we understand this? Isn't this objectifying women? It seems that Christianity is the one remaining thing keeping women down. And then again, it was compiled by men, etc. And then the second piece would be, um, how do we apply this, right? Because that's what's being asked here. In terms of how is this objectifying women? The text isn't, people are. It's just portraying and narrating and describing what happens to women. It's not saying that that's okay or good or virtuous. This would not be okay. In the same way that it would not be okay for Esther to marry a Gentile, it would also not be okay for God's people's like, daughters to be carried off to become a concubine. Nobody's okay with this. The silence about that in the text is not a result of approval, of a moral uh, permission of that. It's, t it's using a genre of Hebrew literature in order to tell the story so that you don't get bogged down by the moral problems with it. It's not saying that there aren't any moral problems. It's saying that's not the point of the story. And so, in a sense, so let me just ask, Yes, it is objectifying women, but that's not what Scripture is doing. That's what King Ahasuerus did, and that's what the Persian Empire did. And no, not much has changed, okay? It seems that Christianity is one thing that would rather keep women down, but then again, most of the text is compiled by men. This is a book named after Esther. How many of you got uh, a book in the Bible named after you? Okay, Luke, dang it. Named after you, not with your name on it. <laughs> See, language is important. Gosh, that was good. 
That was actually really funny. Well done. Okay. <laughs> Awkward laughs are over. Good. Got that tension out of us. Maybe it's just me. Um, it's named after her. And she is, God is the hero of this story, but it is, actually, it is through her, the least likely, the, the person whom all odds are stacked against. Like, being a woman in the Persian Empire was actually more of a, put you at a, a greater inequality for power than being an orphan or an exile was. That's intentional to illustrate two things. One, how good God is in who He uses. Not in a way that is constrained by culture or its values or its virtues, even upside-down ones, but uses it and takes advantage of it to redeem it, right? The second is to make it clear to us as inheritors of this text, as people for whom it was written, maybe not initially or primarily, but absolutely it is a gift to us and for us so that we would know that there is nothing that we are experiencing as a power differential in this world that is in any way going to keep God from using you more powerfully than our culture would say you are limited to. I don't know if God would do this, but it's a, like I'm trying, to, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to state this even more strongly because it's like God is giving the middle finger to every worldly definition of power and, say, and saying, you think you have a clue what power is or how good it is, and you don't have, a, you don't have, you don't have, you don't fathom anything. It is intended to humble and, yes, if necessary, humiliate our definitions of powers such that we are able to let it go so that we can see Jesus in his power. Okay? Like, this is, this is demonstrated as we transition into communion. This is demonstrated at the table. And I'm not talking about us as a church in particular. I'm talking about the Lord's table. I'm talking about communion. Because at communion, on the night that he was betrayed, when Jesus was with his disciples... Before breaking the bread and doing the thing that you're used to me doing here, roughly verbatim every week, Jesus tells his disciple, his disciples, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The language of service there is the language of power. He's saying, also it says in Philippians 1, he emptied himself of his power, and therein was his power. It turns, we, we make power an upside-down virtue. He turns power itself upstream of our making it a virtue on its head and says, you can't make it a virtue if it's, you can only make it a virtue if it's your God. If I am your God, then you cannot make it a virtue. Also, he's better. <laughs> on that night that he said that, the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread with his disciples and he broke it. He said, it doesn't matter how broken you are by the powers of this world. It doesn't matter how constrained you feel systemically or otherwise. This is my body. It is broken for you. I am subjecting myself to the same powers of this world so that you would know you are never, ever without me in it. In the same way, he took the wine, he poured it out, and he said, this wine is... My blood it is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the remission of sins. 
though you pour out all of your effort and all of your life and never see any fruit, it feels like, no matter how ineffective your exercise and use of power is, no matter how little fruit you think is born, in me, you're good. Not just good, you're righteous. And that's a gift that you are to receive, imbibe, ingest even, because I give it to you freely at an infinite cost to myself. That's the gospel. It turns every idea of power we think we have upside down. If that is your hope, and maybe it's a very dim and distant hope. Maybe it's hard to see. Maybe it's hidden. Maybe that, that hope is, is Esther for you right now. Come let Jesus work with that. This is for you. Let's pray. Jesus, you emptied yourself of glory, of power. You came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many why? Because you love. Your power is greater, not just because it is of, of higher quantity than every power of this world, but because it is of a different quality. It is a power that is motivated and animated, not, not by oppression, but by love and mercy. Lord, thank you for your love unconditional, even when we don't get it. We pray this in your name. Amen.